Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would be uh, fully present and even palpable for us today. Pray that you would guide me, that you would open ears and hearts to hear what you would have to say, nothing else. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the next four weeks, uh, we're looking at difficult topics. Disappointment, debt, doubt, depression, the D's and how to deal with them. All of us encounter the D's at certain points in our lives, but how we choose to deal with them can vary wildly. Some people power through them, others succumb, some use denial, others play victim and and blame cast. But what do followers of Jesus do when faced with the D's? What does the Bible teach us to expect, and what is expected from us? The first D, disappointment, visits all of us early and sometimes often. Listen to the cry of a two-year-old who did not get the cookie that she wanted, and it is the sound of ultimate suffering, disappointment. And it continues throughout childhood. I was confronted with disappointment early on. I vividly remember my older brother landing the coveted Seattle Times paper route. This was the gig to get, right? I mean, look at that. On the cool Stingray bike, the three-speed shifter, you know, with your faithful dog and that cool paper pouch that, you know, you know girls would find cool, you know, and you get to go around and collect money and, oh, that would just be so awesome. Well, I got a paper route when I was 10, but it really looked more like this. It was not the Seattle Times. It was the North Sound Shopper. No bike, no faithful dog, no pouch, no subscription money to collect. It was disappointing. But that's not all. Do you remember these? Sea monkeys. Yes, in the back of every comic book. Hours of fun growing your own advanced civilization in a fishbowl that you could be benevolent dictator. I don't know if you, can, you can't read it up there, but it says... Um, Grow a bowl full of happiness. <laughs> ah, and it says, um, you can, they're eager to please, they can even be trained. Right? Well, this is what they actually look like. Yeah. It's a brine shrimp. Yeah, disappointing. Then there was the dream of, of getting in a rock band like my big brothers, and a, a band like the Monkees, you know? They were on TV, so it had to be true right? We'd have a cool monkey's hot rod like this, 1966 GTO with a 389 blower and a solid rear axle that could actually pop wheelies. Yeah, that would be the band car, right? Oh, and then we'd have the cool band house right on the beach like the monkey's had, you know, four 19-year-old guys are renting this, right? Yeah, we'd have the cool band house. Well, um, you know, part of the, my, my dream came true. I did end up joining a band, but our cool band rig looked more like this, And the band house a little more closely resembled this. I was getting used to disappointment by this point in my life. I was expecting it. I became part of a culture that anticipates it, that sees disappointment around every corner and begins to see disappointment in places where it doesn't even really exist. We've become an easily disappointed people, haven't we? And there's a whole internet meme just to make fun of this phenomenon. Maybe you've heard of it, first world problems. 
right? How about this one? I'm hungry, but I already brushed my teeth. <laughs> Soul crushing. How about this? I tried to spread cold butter on my toast, and the bread ripped. <laughs> what are you going to do? And my personal favorite, Apple fans, my iPhone is not the newest anymore, right? Now, the reason these are funny is because they're kind of true, right? Do you remember our Mutiny Against Excess series just a month ago? How hard it was to give up things that most people in the world will never have. And we struggled with it, didn't we? We have increasingly high expectations in every aspect of life. And you know, our grandparents, their hope for us was just that maybe we could own a home, have a little money in the bank, and avoid nuclear annihilation. That's it. So am I saying that it's wrong to to want something better for your kids? No, that's not it at all. I'm asking, what do you expect for your kids, for yourself? What do you feel entitled to? When we say we are disappointed in the Seahawks Super Bowl loss, do we mean the same thing that Nate and Stephanie meant when they said they were disappointed in the loss of their first child? No thinking person would even compare the two, would they? Yet here we are, living in a world where people regularly shoot at each other on the freeway over feeling they got their rights violated. Where kids who don't make it into pro sports, an Ivy League university, or a recording contract before they're 20 are considered disappointments. So perhaps we had best begin by looking at what we mean when we say disappointment. Maybe there's more to this word than we've given it credit. Now, I've given a lot of thought to the word, not just because I've been disappointed by sea monkeys and rock stardom, but because about 10 years ago, God and I began an intimate conversation about me being a disappointment. Has anyone here ever felt like you're a disappointment before? Some of you. Until about 10 years ago, you could say that the fear of being a disappointment was the sole driving force in my life. It was that potent. Here's an excerpt from uh, my journal back then, my prayer journal. Jesus, I need you to sort this out. Where is the broken part of my heart? I don't know where to begin. It seems to settle around shame and disappointment. The broken part of my heart is ashamed of what it is, and it's convinced that it is a disappointment. A point to give status to, to enlist one in an office or a role. Disappoint. Interesting. Who gets disappointed by whom? Now, I didn't know it at the time, but that prayer began a a decade-long season of my life in which disappointment was redefined. Today, I want to explore with you what disappointment really means. Now, that definition, which I came up with while praying 10 years ago, I believe is an inspired insight. I believe God gave me that definition in part because it turns out to have been more accurate than my limited intelligence can account for. Uh, Here's the actual dictionary definition. A point to assign a job or role to someone. Disappoint. Not surprisingly, this comes from the old French, which means to deprive someone of office or position. Remarkably accurate. 
Now, I don't know about you, but the first thing I think of when you say uh, an appointed position or an office is a judge, right? We appoint judges. Therefore, when we fire a judge, we are literally disappointing him. But not just judges. Think of other examples. Police officers are in one sense hired like any other job, but then they're appointed with certain privileges and responsibilities. Military officers are appointed, government officials, committee members of various kinds, overseers, supervisors, guardians, wardens, chaperones, custodians, caretakers, all of them appointed, and usually these are positions of authority. So the first and most simple definition of disappointment is to fire somebody in authority. Fascinating, isn't it? It it kind of turns what we normally think of disappointment on its head. Disappointment is not so much about person A somehow failing and feeling inferior to person B as it is person A saying to person B, your position of authority has been eliminated. You're fired. Well, this idea turned my life upside down. In the midst of that discussion with God, I I actually had a a bit of a a vision, I would say. I use that word very loosely. I don't want to throw that around, but how I've always imagined a vision would go, this was kind of how it was. In the midst of that discussion, I saw myself standing inside an enormous circus ring, right? You know, the, the, the center ring in a circus covered with sawdust, and there was this shaft of light where I stood, and I was performing. I was juggling and plate spinning and lion taming and all the, and I was frantically doing, I was sweat pouring down, I was working so hard because just outside the ring and up on this kind of ridiculously elevated judge's bench, like the Supreme Court, was an array of judges watching me. And I was working hard to try to gain their approval to not be a disappointment to them. And I couldn't see their faces. And it's because it really wasn't any one particular individual person. These people were kind of a composite of of people I was performing for. And I I could hear them making notes while I just worked harder and struggled and juggled harder and tried and tried and tried. And God said, Dan, you need to disappoint these people. Does that phrase ring a little strangely in your ears? You need to disappoint this this person. It still sounds strange to me a little bit. God told me to disappoint some people, to fire them from the positions of authority that they held in my life. And here's the kicker, positions I had appointed them to. Some of them didn't even know the power that they held over me. These were largely appointments I had made. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He goes on to say, it's the Lord who judges me. Now, if you begin reading 1 Corinthians at around chapter 3, you'll see that this, this um, statement from Paul occurs in a context. And the context is this. Whether the Corinthian church thinks he's a legitimate apostle of Jesus or whether they think someone else who came along after him and kind of taught a different gospel, whether they were legitimate. 
That's the context in which Paul says this. And what is, it's clear as a bell. Paul disappoints the Corinthian church. He fired them from the job of judging him as a man and as a servant of Christ. You're fired. It's not your role. You don't get to judge me. Now, does that mean that he allowed no one to hold any authority in his life? Does this mean that we are free to just fire any authorities in our lives willy-nilly as we see fit? We don't like what you say, you're fired. Uh, No, not at all. In Acts chapter 15, we see that Paul was submissive to the authority of the apostles in Jerusalem. And Paul described his submission to Jesus in terms of slavery, Romans 7. No, Paul is no anarchist. But clearly, there are times when authorities should be fired. There are times when the godly thing to do is to disappoint someone. Maybe it's a boss who you are too willing to please with overtime and it's killing you. A spouse whose threats to leave keep you enslaved to their demands. They need to be disappointed. Maybe it's a a parent who never extended the approval that you craved. Maybe it's a friend or even a pastor. For some of you, I'd like you to consider the last time you felt disappointed by someone else. Think about how we've turned this phrase on its head again. Remember how it's usually used? Are you disappointed today? Have you been fired recently? Was it legitimate? Maybe that friend who just never lives up to your expectations has simply demoted you like Paul did the Corinthians. Maybe your feelings of disappointment are appropriate because like Paul, they care very little whether they are judged by you. Disappointed by that child who just never seems to get it? Well, parent, perhaps you should prayerfully ask if you were fired because you've overstepped your legitimate parental authority, so you got fired. Perhaps your feelings of disappointment are not so much about the other person's failure as they are about you being put in your place. Let me say that again. Perhaps your feelings of disappointment are not so much about the other person's failure as it is about you being put in your place. Now, this is the simplest form of disappointment. But in modern times, the word has taken on more nuanced meanings. In this case, having to do with expectations and entitlements. Uh, By way of example, I expected her to call me back, but I was disappointed. I expected God to answer my prayers, but I was disappointed. I'm entitled to a refund, but boy, was I disappointed. Now, an expectation or an entitlement is transactional in nature. It's a transaction. It's it's mathematic. When you expect something, it's because there was some kind of formula in which, in your mind at least, it should result in certain outcomes. You put a certain thing into a system, and you're entitled to a certain thing coming out, right? You pay good money in a restaurant, you expect good service, right? You pay your taxes, you're entitled to having paved roads free of potholes. And when these things don't happen, you are, you're disappointed. Now, there are countless things which we are legitimately entitled to and should reasonably expect. But I want to address two issues here. 
Number one, how do we know if our entitlements are legitimate and our expectations are reasonable? How can we know that? Because I think we demonstrated earlier, we're not always the best at discerning that, are we? With the first world problems, we're not always good at knowing if, we, if it's a reasonable expectation or a legitimate entitlement, are we? So we've got to ask that question. And second, what is the proper response when a legitimate expectation goes unmet? What does legitimate disappointment look like? Well, number one, is my expectation legit? Good question. Well, since an expectation is part of a transaction, in other words, if there wasn't some, some sort of input from you on the other end, there can be no legitimate expectation on the back end. To determine if your disappointment is justified, you've got to start with yourself. What did I put into this? Now, everyone understands this concept, and we even have a phrase for it. Uh, you paid 200 bucks for that car and the transmission blew up? What did you expect? Uh, he still lives with his mother and he can't hold down a job? Say it with me. What did you expect? And live long and prosper, Leonard Nimoy. You showed up late for the 10th time this month and they fired you? You went to Las Vegas with $1,000 and you came back broke? She left your best friend to date you and now you think she might be cheating? Okay, so you guys get it, right? Yeah. The truth is, sometimes you're supposed to be disappointed. The older I get, the more astounded I am at the number of people who are unaware that there is a universal law that all people at all times have acknowledged. The Hindus and the Buddhists call it karma. The folksy types say, what goes around comes around. As you sat crying with a sore butt after a spanking, your dad wagged his finger in your face and said, actions have consequences, young man. And Sir Isaac Newton states in his third law of physics, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. Even the scientists know it. And the Bible doubles down on this idea by saying implicitly but clearly that it's God's design. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Everybody gets it. What did you expect? So the first thing you've got to ask when you're disappointed by an unmet expectation is, what did you expect? Really, be honest with yourself. What was your input? What did you really think would happen? But the second issue is, what happens when someone else's sowing messes up your reaping? Through no fault of your own, an expectation still doesn't come through. Your spouse quits on you. The economy bottoms out. The floods come. The bad guy breaks in and takes all your stuff. What then? Well, the Bible never shies away from these eventualities. Jesus does not sugarcoat it. He simply gives us two ways to take a look at the inevitable disappointments that we did not manufacture ourselves. We played no part in. 
but we're still disappointed. Number one, mitigate the impact. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves can break in and steal. So you reduce the potential disappointment by making sure that you're investing in a place that isn't, there's no potential disappointment. Jesus is telling us that if we establish our expectations in a place where they are safe from karma, cancer, and stock market crashes, then our disappointments will be greatly reduced or even eliminated. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 25, if you do that, therefore don't worry about your life. You're going to be largely free of disappointment if you store your treasure in a place where it's free from all of those things that can come and disappoint you. So mitigate, mitigate the impact. Second thing, celebrate. (laughs) Now, I'll be honest. I don't understand fully how this works, but it does. Earlier in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks some of His best-known words, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to talk about this in detail and extended later on. He said, Blessed are those who are spiritually poor, who mourn, those who are meek, who are desperate for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure-hearted, who are peaceful, and who are insulted, persecuted, and lied about. Rejoice, he says. I, I don't know what else to say about this core teaching of Jesus, except that we must not really believe it. For if we did, God's law of sowing and reaping would be producing a lot more joy for those of us who are suffering disappointment. If we believed it, we'd be living differently. In other words, if you're disappointed, if your expectations are going unmet through no fault of your own, and remember, you've got to clear that bar first, and you're still not finding any joy in your disappointment, then odds are you've sown your seeds in the wrong place. Your treasure is in a place where disappointment can still reach it. Allen Creek, I'd like to mark today as the day we start holding one another accountable to live that belief out. I mean, to really believe it and start living it. We, I think we either forget the promises of joy in the midst of disappointment, or we're too shy to remind disappointed friends of God's promises. We're afraid of offending or maybe exposing our own lack of faith. But we can't escape the simple fact of what the Bible teaches. There is a place of blessing when we are disappointed in Jesus' way. And if we're not disappointed in Jesus' way, we're in the wrong place, right? Now, I'm not talking about the hyper-emotional name it and claim it. I'm just cheerful, woohoo, no matter what. And your salvation comes into question or your spiritual maturity is questionable on the days that you're sad or, not, or kind of feeling extra beat up. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that in a mature, Bible-believing and transparent church, we should be able to sit with our disappointed brother or sister and ask, so where is God's joy in this for you? We should be able to say that to each other. Now, some of you might be cringing at this point because you have experienced a still deeper level of disappointment. It's not your fault. It's it's no one's fault, really. It goes beyond causes and outcomes. It has little to do with theology and argumentation and, and truths and beliefs. 
It's the secret unlisted fifth D. I'm not talking about depression here. We're going to cover that in a few weeks. The place I'm referring to is a deep, specific sense of irreversible loss. It's no longer disappointment. It has become despair. You heard this place described by Nate and Stephanie in the video earlier. It's a kind of disappointment that so deep that no light penetrates. It's a place beyond rational thought. A place where just breathing hurts, where just existing hurts. There's nothing but the next moment, and you know it will be just like the last moment. And in your imagination, these moments spiral on into the future, and the thought of having to live this out makes you at best long for nothing but sleep, and at worst, this is a place where talk of God's joy and the unbiblical commentary like, well, God meant this to happen for some reason, are at best hollow platitudes, and at worst, it's just a further injury to an already ravaged soul. There's no room in this lonely, dark place for words at all. What are we to make of disappointment that's turned to despair? We look to the cross, literally. When the pain is so great that words can't come to your mind, when, when you can't see straight for the grief, when the sobbing comes unbidden and uncontrolled, when you are convinced that this is what insanity must be, and the sound of another's voice or the touch of their hand makes you jump out of your own skin, then let this simple, unadorned image bloom in your imagination. No words, no analysis, just meditate on it. Trace it out with your finger on your own tear-stained breast. Draw it over and over again. Let it become the single point of light in that darkness. For it is the source of hope. Hope is the sometimes slow-working antidote to despair. Now, it's not rocket science, is it? You don't need a medical degree to know that the cure for dehydration is hydration. That hypothermia is treated with thermia, heat. And that the loss of hope needs hope. But in all cases, dehydration, hypothermia, and despair... The antidote doesn't come from inside the circumstances. It has to come from outside. The water has to come from outside the dry place. The heat has to come from outside the cold place. And hope has to come from outside the place of hopelessness. But in our blind pain, we are often deluded that if we just rearrange the broken pieces of our despair, our circumstances again, that hope will spontaneously just emerge. If we push the button again, if we just keep turning the key, if we look under the same couch cushion one more time, things will be different. The despair will leave us. But despair is a closed system. 
hope has to come from outside. Romans chapter 8 is what I like to call the hope chapter. And here's a portion of it that I think explains it really well. Paul says, For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Despair. He goes on, And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit with us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, to be released from despair. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. And then he says, almost as in parentheses, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, something from outside, we must wait patiently and confidently. Okay, so with the few minutes we have left, let me break this passage down a little bit. First of all, I want you to note this. All of creation is suffering. That means the whole universe. You got to remember, it doesn't matter from what direction you come today spiritually. This is one thing that everyone agrees on. The universe is finite. It has a beginning. Don't know for sure if it has an end, but it does have edges. It's a closed system. And it's the place of despair. Because there's only so much hydrogen. There are only so many helium molecules in the universe. There's only so much water. We're not making any more of it. There's only so much love. There's only so much purpose. There's only so much support. There's only so much food. And the fact is, some people don't get enough of it, of any of those things, for various reasons. It's a closed system of despair. And all of creation is groaning under the despair of these limited resources. All of it. That's where we live. Second thing from this passage, we Christians are in it. We're included. Jesus made it clear, we're going to suffer right along with everyone else. The idea that following Jesus somehow gets you a pass on despair is a lie from the pit of hell via the TBN network. Third thing, even from inside a despairing universe, Christians have hope. Hope is resources that come from outside this limited system of despair. In other words, from outside the created universe. You see, your atheist friend, he's left to hope only in what he can find inside the system of despair and that he can get his share of it however he can get it. That's the only hope he has. That's it. But biblical hope is connected to something we don't already have, something from outside, what we can acquire with our five senses. Another translation renders those last two verses, 24 and 25, like this. But hope does not involve what we already have or see, for who goes around hoping for what he already has? But if we wait expectantly for things we have never seen, then we hope with true perseverance and eager anticipation. There is hope. It has to come from outside. Hope is what draws our eyes up from our circumstances, out of the conditions which breed despair, and onto that which is not yet here. 
This is where the image of the cross comes in. The vertical portion of the cross is a reminder to us that there is a tether, a connection to an unconditional love, unlimited joy, unending peace, and the unbreakable promise that is yours through the work of Jesus Christ done on that cross. It's not fully here yet, but we hope for it. You don't have to remember theology in that place of darkness and despair. You just remember the image of the cross and that it connects you. Brother, sister who is in despair, hold in your heart the image of the cross of Christ, reaching into the heavens, into the eternal, infinite source of God's love for you, and at the same time, it is deeply rooted in the muddy, clinging soil that you find yourself stuck in. It connects the two places. For all things are passing, even despair, but God never changes. Isaiah 49, 23 says, those who put their hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. And also, look to the horizontal portion of the cross. Look to your left and to your right. You are not alone. There are so many of us who would sit with you, who would cry with you, who would look to the cross alongside you in your hour of despair. God wired us for community. Did you notice in the video at what point in the Madison story they chose to reach out to community? Stephanie said it. She said, I remember the night it happened, the night I chose to trust God, the vertical portion of the cross. Nate and I had hit rock bottom despair. And I decided to tell God that I was going to trust Him. I needed to trust Him. I recognized that I couldn't blame Him for taking our daughter from us anymore. And then next thought, we started attending AC3 shortly after. After after hoping that we would reveal, excuse me, we started attending AC3 shortly after, hoping that He would reveal His plan to us. The vertical and then the horizontal. That hope that she talked about included reaching this way not just this way. Did you know that on September 12th, 2001, around a dozen people just wandered into this weird-looking building off the streets, just hoping that they wouldn't be alone on that day? Do you know uh, how many distant friends and family members of AC3ers that Rick and I have had the honor of interacting with only because that when a loved one died, they instinctively looked around for a community and the only one they could find was, well, this church that they've never attended, but so-and-so knows. Why did hundreds of parents and students flock to churches in the days after the MP shootings in October? If I asked for a show of hands of how many people found their way into church because they were reaching out of their despair for some hope, how many hands would go up? The Bible says that we are to bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, and yes, even mourn together. And sometimes the only thing to do is to mourn together. Now, I know some of you have been disappointed by your community. I have been too. Well, friend... At that moment, we need to sort out that disappointment just like we sort out any disappointment. Let's go back. 
Have you been fired from your community, from your position? Or maybe you're the one who fired everyone around you. Have you literally disappointed everyone who could be there for you right now? Or have you been disappointed? No? Okay. Then move down. What's next? Maybe you feel you were entitled to a certain kind of community. If so, have you contributed to its failure? What did you put in? What was your input? What did you expect? Maybe it was fundamentally broken, and you should expect it to come to an end. Is, it's that, is, is that what happened? Is that what's needed? No? Then we move on. Then you are in a place of holy disappointment. You're in a place of blessing. And maybe God only knows why right now. But that's where you are. So make sure your treasure is in heaven and celebrate. Matthew chapter 5, rejoice. You can't rejoice? You can't rejoice? Okay. The pit is so deep you've fallen into despair. Then realign your hope on the cross. Refocus your needs on the source which is outside your circumstances and then extend your hands again and grasp the hands of your fellow disappointed. I want to leave you with kind of a visual of this. Just in our last minute. I want you to imagine a place of darkness. Can we make it dark? Is there a way to make it dark? Light person? Is there a way to make it dark? Thank you. So I want you to imagine a place of darkness, that place of despair where you're wandering. You're wondering why. It's that moment-to-moment suffering. Where is God? Where, where is anyone else? There's a groping. Why have they all left me? Maybe they haven't left you. Maybe they're right where they always were, where they should be. Maybe what's required as you grope through this darkness is for you to realign on the cross. To just do that first. Nothing more complicated than to just step into that place again where you align on Christ. You recognize the tether. You recognize the one point of hope that comes into the darkness. And once you find yourself aligned in this place, then you reach out in the other direction. And it's in that moment that you find the hand to grasp because you've realigned here. And it brings you here. Dear God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who find themselves in the darkness today, those who despair. Lord, I pray that the image of your cross would sear onto their imaginations. I pray that they would turn with all the strength that they have and pull themselves under your alignment. And Lord, I pray that through the miraculous work of your Spirit that there would be hands there to grasp them when they reach out. Lord, I pray for those who find themselves in the place of blessing, of holy disappointment. Lord, help them to rejoice, and we will rejoice with them. Lord, for those who have broken expectations, help them to reassemble anew with new expectations aligned with you. And for those of us who've been fired, God, help us to find new employment.
place where you would put us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. Thanks, friends, for being with us as we kick off this series. Uh, we're going to cover the Beatitudes again, those, that place of holy disappointment here in Extended. Move right to the center, and we will see you next week.